From Editor-at-Large, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. You're probably listening to this podcast because you love the design industry. It's full of great stories, personalities, beauty, and soul. It's also changing quickly and needs to evolve or risk being diminished. Our sponsor, Fuego, is building tools to protect and preserve it. Go to fuego.com BOH and enter the code BOH to get a free month of their project management software and join the conversation in their Facebook group, which is titled For the Trade. And now, on with the show. My guest this week is Maxwell Ryan. Maxwell is the founder and CEO of Apartment Therapy. Apartment Therapy is a home and decor site designed to inspire anyone to live a more beautiful and happy life at home. Maxwell, welcome. Thanks. Nice to be here. So nice to have you. And I'm so interested to hear how Apartment Therapy got started. How did it begin? How did it begin? Well, it, 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 it began like a lot of things in New York uh, without knowing that it would actually happen. Um, but it's a good story, so I'll, t- I'll tell it. I, I was, uh, when I got out of college, I really wanted to work in design, and arts and design, but I wanted to work in, on the business side, uh, not to be alone in the studio. Uh, um, much as that would have been great, I, I was not, I knew I would fail. So I went to work, I got a job right out of college working for a design firm called Gear, run by a man named Raymond Waits, which is mm. on 7th Avenue. Oh, sure, okay. Near the old Barney's, or actually Barney's is back now. And I was so excited. I arrived in whatever it would have been, June, May, June. Of, right. I just graduated from college. And it was this beautiful, clean, bustling workshop of people designing textiles and accessories and lighting and furniture. Um, and I loved it. Oh. Um, cut to three, four months later, and it, I, was, I, was, I was dying. You, I was you were miserable. Wait a second. And, I want to get out of here. And what, what, what I realized is that while I love that stuff and sort of the artistic sort of um, craft side of me right. um, was really fed by that having come from college and, you know, you know you, I, I love art classes, but you don't get to do it all the time. Right. This was inc- totally decorative. So what Raymond was doing was designing super decorative stuff on trend and he was a trendsetter to... A lot of it was being made in China, and then it was being sold, and we had two stores, or two stores at the time. And I remember feeling that if if, if it was just about decor, mm. and it was just about what it looks like, right? I couldn't do that with my life. There was something there that did, it didn't scratch mm, okay. a sense of uh, meaning or um, or deep satisfaction. Not knowing what the answer was, I left. Um, and long story short, I ended up about a year and later going to back to school um, at Columbia. Got a, a master's in English literature, okay, English and American literature, and became a teacher. Um, the goal with the with the degree was to teach school. Why? Um, I'll, to be honest, I was I was lost. <laughs> okay, at the, at the you time, you'd find yourself in teaching. And, and I know I had a therapist uh, who was really influential, um, and she was an older woman, much older. And she eventually said, "You know what you need to do? You need to get a job." And because I was very creative, I was doing lots of different things. I was 
they won't even go into all the different things that I was trying to do at the time. Okay. And she said, to get a job, you need to get working papers. So you got to go get your working papers, go to school, take a year and a half, two years. And so I did that. Um, ended up, I thought I'd teach high school. Ended up, uh, my first job was in first grade. So I ended up for seven years teaching elementary school. Oh. And most of those years were at the Waldorf, the Rudolf Steiner School on 79th Street. Right. Which is, okay. <laughs> which was like healing for me because I yes. ended up spending pretty much the same amount of time that I spent in my own elementary education. Mm. I then duplicated about five blocks north uh, in a completely different environment. The, the Waldorf schools, as a class teacher, you teach their kids, you get them in first grade and you teach them through eighth. The last class I took, I took through fifth grade. Okay. Um, you spend a lot of time visiting them at home. You visit every student at home every really? year. Yep. You have dinner with them. You visit their room. You, you really become integrated into their life. And oh, See, this is the school I should have gone to, Maxwell. It would, it would have this been, all it would have could have been, been so different. I got, to, I got to redo it slightly. Um, but what the Waldorf taught me was they it's not just a curriculum, but they have indications or, or um, they call them indications, I don't know what you would say, for everything that touches the student. Where do they sit, the shape of the chair, the color on the wall, um, where the sunlight's coming through the window. And, and it sensitizes you as a teacher that all of this stuff is incredibly important to the child flourishing in the classroom mm. and learning the lesson and growing up. And, and actually, it's also important at home, too. So when you visit the kids at home, you, you can't be heavy-handed with the, with the parents. Most of them are actually at the Waldorf School because they are into it. But not everybody can live as uh, monk-like. As, as a, prescribed. As prescribed. The, I see. Okay. Um, and who's sending their children to this wonderful school? Who are the, what are the parents like that are sending well, their kids uh, there? They, Sounds very experimental. It's, well, it's, it, it is and it isn't. The, the school started in 1917 in, in Austria. So... Uh, it's actually quite classical. Right. It's quite r- regimented, um, um, but it is a reform movement mm. in, in coming in, in the early 1900s. So there is an emphasis on what, what they call learning from the head to the heart to the hands. So, uh, for example, what and, and Steiner broke down thinking. So when you actually when you actually think something through or something happens to you that's cognitive, the first thing is you have a feeling, mm. and that feeling rises up, and you put that. And you have to create a thought around that feeling. Well, I feel uncomfortable. I feel happy. I feel. Why do I feel? What's going on here? And then after you have the thought, you, typically an action takes place, and you use your limbs and you do something. So it gets much more complicated but yeah. every lesson and, and in order for the children to to grow properly and use their whole organism every lesson flows through all three places and in, in fact if you if you come along a lot later and you think about reforms in education like the intelligence multiple intelligences right. and seven intelligence it's all pretty much similar um it's just that steiner i think was remarkable in mapping it out very early on so the, the, the Waldorf schools are, they're quite, I wouldn't say they're rigid, mm. but they're conservative. They're, okay. they, they have a way of doing things, and they, it's deep. And they, they're not, uh, hey, come in here and spend the next two hours with your seven-year-olds you know, figuring out what they want to do with their day. Right. It's, very, it's much more prescriptive. This is uh, how your day will flow. Exactly. You, you, okay. you, you pull the children through a flow, mm-hmm. and it's very intentional, and, um, and it was great. During those years, I found myself doing two things. One, realizing I was, I was learning uh, a way 
to, to shape environments that was not decorating, but was almost more important. There, and so I was now aware of what was going on in the room beneath what it looked like. I was aware of what it felt like and how it was affecting me and how color affected people and how a television screen mm-hmm. will affect someone in a room or um, how lighting affects someone, how textures affect someone. That came through Waldorf. And at the same time, I was going more and more frustrated um, working in a school environment uh, with very complicated politics. As a young teacher, very, you are not exactly um, welcome to make changes or make suggestions. So they weren't over to new ideas. Not really. Got no. it. Okay. No. And so, Doesn't sound that way. And, and a lot of Waldorf schools are. Okay. But the Steiner School is the oldest Waldorf school in the country. It was started, uh, now I think it's coming up almost its 100th anniversary. So it's old. I mean, it, it, it has... I, I did a lot of teacher training in California and New Hampshire and other places at other Waldorf schools, and they're they're very um, much looser, let's just say. But um, it's funny, you know, growing up in the city like you, I now I remember the sort of the Steiner School and kids that went there, and I guess we must have played against them in sports at at school. But I, I had no idea that this was what the curriculum and, yeah. and was all about. Back then, it attracted uh, a lot of parents who were looking who were much more directed toward the arts or their life was devoted to the arts or coming out of the arts mm-hmm. and they and you know they looked at the rigid private schools they wanted to go to private not public right and they felt this was progressive mm-hmm. i mean it's a progressive okay. school right. right in uptown there's not not many not, right a lot, a lot um, of choices there Okay, so you were getting a little frustrated, though. So, and, and I, and I, I uh, found myself reading the business section uh, more than the whatever. If, they, if I should have been re- reading the educational <laughs> section, I was not. And at that time, the business was really in a very flourishing place. This is pre-Enron. This is, this is when uh, pre-George W. Bush. This is when uh, Microsoft was booming and Apple was booming and people were looking at business, particularly tech at the time, mm-hmm. as being a place where people were really experimenting with how do we work together. Maybe we have meetings outdoors. Maybe we have flexible work schedules. Maybe we, um, we, we telecommute. Um, I was, Apple was incredibly influential. They, they, they were trying to reimagine everything they did, right. not just the computer. Right. Um, but the computer was certainly a breakthrough. And... It was fascinating. And, and so there was a fellow named Paul Hawken who started um, Erewhon Foods. Then he started Smith & Hawken. Then he, he went on to do a number of things, wrote many books. He's a consultant. He, he, he created the concept of the triple bottom line, mm. where the bottom line should actually go lower and you should actually see how you're impacting the social, uh, the social uh, health of our community and even the earth. Um, and he said... Business, he, he was in business because business was an engine of change. And business was in a, a, a remarkable place in this country. It was a place where you could be, you could grow, you could express yourself, and you could um, be the human expression could flourish. And right. I was like, sign me up. <laughs> Get me working Let's with this that. guy. So I... Um, so and what was he doing at the time? He had, he had written this book, and he was doing Smith & Hawken. Okay. Actually, he'd sold Smith & Hawken, and he was... In Which was the, a wonderful sort of gardening right, company, yeah. right? It was, it was right. pre-terrain. It was, right. it was, okay. uh, yeah. He started selling shovels and you know garden shovels yes. from England and, and beautiful and, things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, at that time, I think he was in uh, based in Mill Valley, uh, starting to be more of a guru. Okay. At, at the time, um, so 
I am I'm really at a wit's end. I've been teaching for seven years, and I now have cut my teeth, and I've, I, uh, I know I've got a, a job, which, by the way, as a teacher, for the first few years, you do not think that. You are scared. You're scared to death because it's so hard, and right. you're working constantly, and you're constantly under pressure whether i mean not just from the students who mm. will put pressure on you even on good days sure but also from the faculty to keep up with the older teachers who obviously know everything already so as a young teacher it's really hard harrowing and i i got to a place where i was like you know what i can do this i'm going to take a year and i'm going to start something different and if i fail i can get a job right um and i don't have a lot to lose because i'm not making that much money anyway so I, could, I couldn't go a lot lower at this point. <laughs> okay. And um, so I don't know exactly where it started, but I think at that time I was already thinking about design, interior design. I want to go back into design, but I'm going to use these Waldorf principles. I want to teach people, because I'm a teacher, how to do it themselves. Right. I get them started, you know, consult with them. And one night at dinner, after a bunch of drinks, my old friend said, you should, you, you should, be, you should call department therapy because... My father was a psychiatrist, and uh, my mother was a painter, and they thought that was very funny. <laughs> and I um, thought it was funny, too, although I didn't think it was very flattering, but it stuck. Right. So I became the apartment therapist. The apartment therapist. And there was a guy I sat at dinner that summer, and he said, I'm working for, the, I'm, I'm working for this bank. I've got this new apartment. They're renting me this really fancy apartment. i got no furniture, and I accept stuff from college, and, and I'd love help. I said, i Love to help you. I'm your man. I, yeah, and I and and I said, "What's your goal?" And he said, "My goal is to be able to invite a woman over and impress her." And I said, "Perfect. Okay, we can do that too." So that <laughs> was the first goals. job. Yeah, he gave me a budget. He had basically an empty apartment, and I furnished out his living room, uh, a, a very small, very cute, romantic dining room, mm-hmm. which would only be used for a date because right. this was a fellow who. Was probably going to eat on the sofa otherwise. <laughs> he, right, he wasn't eating at the table most no. nights. And uh, his kitchen, um, I stocked his kitchen because if he's going to cook, he's going to have someone over. We had to do that too, and it and it, and it sort of went from there. And what I found in New York is that the wonderful thing about New York is you can sort of do anything. You can try anything. You can start any business because everybody here wants to hire someone else to do something they don't want to do. Right. Even like walk walking your dog. Walking your dog. <laughs> Big business. So. Uh, and what just happens is when you're out of work, which is basically what I was, right. your friends go, oh, you're out of work. Uh, will you come over here and help me with this? <laughs> and you start working for friends, and then you work for friends of friends, and eventually you're working for friends of friends of friends, and then you eventually you're working for strangers, and you have a business. And by the end of the year, I, was, I, I wouldn't say I broke even in the first year, but I wasn't that far underwater. And I definitely had mapped out a trajectory. I'd gotten a bunch of press, and it was growing. Um, so that's where it started. Cut to two, that was two thousand one. Okay. Um, two thousand one. If you remembers September eleven, two thousand one, the Twin sure. Towers fell. I was just left teaching. I was starting this new business. I was on Broadway in Houston, and I looked up at the buildings, and there was a hole in them, and we thought it was a fire. Oh my god! We goodness. walked around the street thinking, sure. "Oh, it was a fire," and then yeah. there were no cell phones in those days, so people didn't really know what was going on yeah. in radio and it slowly dawned on us but the important thing is it was a huge huge happening it was a huge disaster could have been the world's worst time to start a business turned out what happened with 9-11 is everybody went home 
everybody said, I need to focus on what's important. And a lot of those people focused on family, right. uh, children, family, friends, and that centered in the home. The whole cocooning yep. phenomenon sort of started at that, yeah. And, and, and uh, health of the home became a big issue because the air was so dirty in lower Manhattan mm. that people were, whoa, my God, maybe I'm breathing carcinogens. So this is when pl- people started to bring plants into their house to clean their air. Air filters took off. Water right. filters took off. Yeah. So, so apartment therapy was started. It was a great time to start a business in a sense because when you're in a healing, helping profession and, and there's a disaster, not that there should be another one, it, it, it opens doors for you to step into. And it's happened twice in my life. That was the first one. And it sort of took off. Um, the people wanted help with their homes. And I said, it's not just about beauty. Right. It's about health yes. and organization. Um, anyway, it, it took off. It's a very hard to scale a service business in New York, mm-hmm. particularly if you're not a super organized logistical person, which I'm not. I'm definitely more on the creative side. Okay. So I got to a place where I was really stretched. Um, but by 2004, I was making money, mm-hmm. making more than I was as a teacher. And my brother, who had gone to business school and was working in Silicon Valley, came back and said, you should check out these things called blogs. I said, what's a blog? And he said, <laughs> it's all well, these cool things you can write to the web and people read them and yeah. they can comment. Oh, okay. So they're really cool. And he said, you're, you know, you're a teacher. You're my older brother. You're sort of bossy. You'd be a good blogger. And, uh, and you have a category here where people would communicate with you. So I said, I'm, I'm, and he, and he said, by the way, the business you're in is not going to scale. My second question was, what does scale mean? <laughs> and, and, and I, because right. I was, when you're an entrepreneur, you are willfully not looking at all the problems because it doesn't help you to look at problems. So I was charging ahead and, and you were just doing the work that was in front of you and getting new business and you, where you were going, you were, you use energy to overcome any obstacle, right. but at a certain point you realize you're exhausted. Um, so I, then I started blogging. He took, uh, he transitioned he was between jobs came back to the east coast he helped me set up the first site I started writing in the morning and I was like wow this is really fun I could go to my clients photograph the before and afters come back put them on the web and then when, at dinner I had 20 comments right and it's like that's when the penny dropped it's like this is really fun this is even more fun than working with clients <laughs> because I can work with I can see two clients a day mm-hmm. three clients a day sometimes they're not even home and the rest of the time, I'm haranguing service people and parking tickets and elevator men. And I'm, a, and I'm a teacher at heart, so now I've got a classroom again. Right. So I started beginning, I got addicted to, to blogging and started to write more and more and more. And eventually I was, you know, I'd look up and it was lunchtime and I hadn't actually worked on my clients. And I did that for four years. Okay. And then I was, I was literally... Where you were juggling the two both. things. So you were blogging and you were still working with clients and... Clients made all the money. There's no doubt. Right. Blogging means zero money. Zero I was money. just writing. Right. And, just, and it was growing. But you were getting this audience that was responding to yep. you. Yep. It's 400. And how were people finding you in those days? In those days, it's interesting. They found you more easily than they do today. Okay. Uh, the web was new. Right. There were not a lot of sites. And so word of mouth traveled swiftly mm-hmm. uh, people would they were getting in the habit back then of they, they'd open up their laptop they, again they didn't have uh, smartphones yet 
And part of one of the great, what we became is a great procrastination from doing your work is you'd go through the sites you liked. Right. And there were sites like Boing Boing. You could get fun stuff and you could, you could go to the Gawker sites. I mean, there was, it was Gawker, Gothamist, Curbed, right. Us, okay. Tree Hugger, uh, Design Sponge came along. Um, and if you were into design or anything, by the way, politics was where it all started. Pol- politics and the political elections powered the blogs and people po- politics people love their sites right okay so this is a, now we're offshoot there's the sports sites now they've got your design sites it was happening but it was very local and so you'd have your 10 favorite sites and you'd go one two three and you read all through them as your blog roll right and that was your day yeah um and once you got added to the blog roll you were there on that person and and then you'd write to the other sites and say please put me on your site list right every site had a little list of other sites that they liked and that would be your go-to if you wanted to find something new. So that's how we sort of watered one another. Okay. Um, so it was 400,000 people. It was about 2007. And I got a call uh, from a man who said, we'd love to meet with you. We work for IAC, very dealer's company. We'd sure. like to talk about buying your site. I was like, buy my site. It, I had to call my brother, Oliver, <laughs> in business school. Right. Um, we, have, we had a little bit of money because I learned how to turn on Google ads at that point. Okay. But it was really uh, not a business at all. And in fact, I thought, my brother and I thought it, when we started it, he thought, you know, if this does really well, you, you will have a job and this will be a really nice side project. Maybe you'll make $20,000 a year and it'd be really lovely and it'll be a passion. Right. Um, I don't want to get too lost in the details, but... That threw me into a realization that I had to go around and potentially sell the site. Why? Because I was a one-person business. I'd hired my sister out of college to answer phones. I had a bunch of freelancers who were all really passionate. And I thought, I would love to make this real. I'd love to give people real jobs. I can't do that by myself. This is, I mean, I'm a one guy in an empty room. So... Let's see what who could own this and give it a home. Ended up t- ending up with Scripps, uh, who owned HGTV and Food Network, and they sure. won a bidding war for $12 million to buy the site. $12 million? And, yeah. So you in your room and a few freelancers, and yeah. they were willing to pay you $12 million because, because what? You had this great audience? You had this they were investing 000. in They were investing in their future. Okay. And they knew that Scripps was a really interesting company. They were a newspaper company. Mm-hmm. And every 10 years, the family sits down and says, what's the future? And over that time, they had gone into cable, Food Network, right. HGTV. Yes. And that really became their future. And the next, they were at the moment of their next future and they knew it was online. So they'd started to buy a bunch of sites. Okay. And uh, as had Barry Diller as IAC. Right. And, and so we became part of like, let's buy this little thing and grow it and we'll have claim to this part of the market and we'll assemble a whole bunch and mm-hmm. whatever everyone was doing. So that's what they were interested in. They, um, the second disaster happened though, September as well, 2000, uh, Eight, Lehman Brothers. Lehman yeah. Brothers fell apart on a Tuesday. Sure. And the CFO, or the woman I had been working with at Scripps, called the deal off on Friday. Oh. I was on the train, going away for the weekend. And truth be told, I was it was a, 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 a lot of relief. In my mind, I was spending money for sure. It was uh, super cool. Okay. But I could tell that what was going to happen to this this 
passion in this this child of mine right. was that it was going to be squeezed into cubicles and it was going to get sort of sucked dry. This is how you envisioned that after the I, takeover. I got into them. I got to know them. Okay. You know, once you do a deal, you say, okay, I agree to do right. a deal, and then you go to due diligence for a number of months where you actually kick the tires and you mm-hmm. you refine the economics and they show you, you know, all right, where are we actually going to work? Are you going to give us an office? Yeah. Are you going to give us computers? Blah, yeah. blah, blah. So that was not looking good. Okay. And So the money was nice, but the future vision of what the company was going to It, it was like, like, yeah, you pay us and then basically it dies. Right. That's what it felt like. So I got thrown out, thrown on. I was thrown into debt because I had to pay all the bankers Deals and lawyers. Off. And so you've been you've been using all these outside consultants to help they you didn't, with the deal. They had said, "No, don't pay us till don't pay us uh, till you get the money," because of course oh, you have the money. Of course. Um, and then what happened was, with two thousand eight, was the beginning of everybody going online. Hmm. Magazines started to fold. Newspapers started to fold. Right. Kids coming out of college, at that point, were like, "Why would I buy a magazine?" I'm just going to, it's all online. Yeah. And it was really, and then the advertisers who were struggling for figuring out how to uh, be frugal with their money, who previously had seen the web as sort of a ghetto, they said, hmm, it's not a ghetto. Maybe it's the future. So they came back and and they started to spend online. That was the beginning. Previous to that, Google ads were on the web, but everything else was dancing, dancing girls and like really cheap stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, and the audience boomed. So I, I the online I, audience. Yep, I, I, okay. I got. I had to borrow a whole bunch of money from my family, which it took me about three years to pay off. But the traffic took off. Okay, it just it just began to accelerate. It was really really cool. And every month was like traffic went up, traffic went up. And and what was the site at the time? So what was being written about? What were the stories that were being produced on Two, apartment? Two thousand eight was we were I, I yeah I skipped a quick piece. Apartment therapy was the root. Now to the root I split food, which became kitchen, family, which became Odie dough, uh, home technology, which became um, unplugged, and green, all everything green, which became Renest. And so we were five sites with freelancers all over the country. I had four full time people at that time. And uh, we were trying to cover every stage of the home. Right, okay. And that's where it was. I also got an ad contract. So if you want to know about the business of the web, the real business was that there wasn't much of one. Um, (laughs) Okay. Except that these ad networks, that they were aggregating sites. Martha Martha Stewart was the first one. We were called Martha's Circle. And she said, well, if I get all these sites together. She didn't really respect us too much. But she knew, because her people were telling her it was probably a good business play, and we were supposed to think she was the bee's knees, so we, right. we joined Martha's Circle, and they And she sold was a the force at the, at the time, right? She was, she was but, was, but as, as websites, we were always disruptors. We were always doubting. As much as we read all that stuff, right. we, were, we had attitude towards okay. it, okay. for sure, from the beginning. Okay. And that came through on the site? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally covered her going to jail and the helicopters flying around City Hall yeah. when, when she was <laughs> you in You like court. that story. Oh, we love that. We love that. I, mean, okay. I got into a lot into trouble. I got into trouble. I bet you did. Um, okay. Which we like to. But okay. Oh, so you were, so you were a little edgy with the whole thing. Oh, yeah. It wasn't just, oh, I, got, I want to make you happy at home. I also want to give a little edge. Absolutely. We, <laughs> okay. we had no, I would read the New York Times home section every Thursday. Right. And by lunch, I would have given it a grade. It was either pass, you know, accelerate, right. excel or failing. And 
Uh, and when you would share this online with, uh, right with away. your community? Yeah. So and, and, I, and, I, I start, and I got calls. Like. I got a call okay. from the editor of the home section. Penelope Green, I'm sure she had you on the she, dial. She, 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 was, she was a writer there, but the, the editor all the nice things that she used to took me to you. lunch, and he's like, what is this that's happening, and why is this going on? He was super cool, but yes. his staff was rattled, um, and, and they were pissed, and they were annoyed, and they were um, not liking it. They didn't like, no one ever commented on them They before. weren't liking all this feedback that you were providing. Especially the negative. I mean, the positive they okay. sort of liked, but they weren't right. even sure about that. Sure. They weren't even used to any of that, though, right? And people were talking about it in their office. So it's like, they're the New York Times. They're the paper of record. And for some reason, these, these other upstarts are, are getting a lot of play. Yes. It was confusing. And people were very dismissive about bloggers in the beginning, right? Everyone thought you were at home in your pajamas and you yes. were just, right? Ranting about whatever. Yeah. And it was very, I mean, it was very partisan, if you yes. will, in a certain sense. But newspapers, by and large, had never had to deal with feedback. Mm. They said what they said, and they were right, and that was it. So it was the beginning of... Especially the New York Times. Yes. Right. The paper yeah. of record. Yes. Right? Okay. So... So that, uh, that, was, that was happening. We, we joined networks. The networks would say, we'll take over your whole inventory. You guarantee us that you'll keep your page views up, and we'll give you... A rev share off of what we sell. Okay. And if you were lucky, you'd get a guarantee. They'd say, all right, we'll guarantee we'll pay you at least $20,000 a month. Um, assuming they felt confident or they needed to say that to keep you. Mm-hmm. And they'd say that to the bigger ones, which we were, we were lucky to get there. The smaller ones, they wouldn't give that deal to. Um, so we wrote, our ad sales really was networks. We moved from okay. Martha Stort to Glam to federated media to say over um, almost a decade um, and we were lucky enough to be the sort of anchor tenant and so we got all these guarantees so I actually had reliable cash flow uh, for those years during that time uh, I realized I had to build a sales team because we mm-hmm. they were not selling all the time and we had people coming to us directly, so I built a sales team behind that wall. Okay. And then eventually we were splitting, mm-hmm. and then eventually we we kicked out the uh, networks, and we you didn't need that anymore. You could we didn't need it anymore, but it was a real evolution, and it was carefully step by step because what happened to a lot of sites, if you didn't have a network, it took a lot of money to build a, a team, and so you had to borrow it or, or get investors. We don't have any investors. Or if you have a network and you don't build a team, when the network disappears, the network owns you mm-hmm. because they're, they're your entire revenue sure. stream. All you become is an editorial content machine with no purse strings at all. So what happened with a lot of these sites when they got really big working with networks, if the networks kicked off, they couldn't replace that revenue fast enough by building a sales team and their expenses had sure. elevated. They had built up to and revenue. They a lot of them had to sell or or fold. Okay. And that happened to a bunch of friends. So we were very fortunate that we got we and it wasn't exactly brilliance, it was a little bit guts and instinct that mm-hmm. it, step by step we organically we, we got there. Um but by two thousand thirteen we were had a sales team uh, and also, I folded it down to two sites. Those okay. five sites went down to two. Okay. There's too many sites. We couldn't sell five things at once. Mm-hmm. Too complicated. Too many business cards <laughs> to make. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and I folded three of them back into apartment therapy. Okay. I kept food. 
out and apartment therapy got instantly really big overnight. And it was already the biggest, so it got even bigger. And kitchen was the fastest growing, so we kept Mm -hmm. that. And then over the next few years, even including to today, 2018, uh, kitchen took off about a year or so later. The search on food went bananas. And kitchen accelerated shot past apartment therapy and, and now today it's twice as big and what was that magic moment where kitchen just blew up because you're so right there was just there was just a, a, a switch that went off and everyone was, wanted to talk about food and everyone was writing about food and reading it was about october food. 2013 i mean it, you remember exactly it google, what it was it was but, i mean google changed an algorithm and okay. it affected us instantly really we went up 20 percent overnight and it just continued from there. So they changed the algorithm. Somehow Google wanted, people were spending, were going to the web more to right. look for stuff, recipes mainly, okay. how-tos. A lot of people at that time, was like, people would go to, to Google and go put in, they open their fridge and go, oh, I've got kale and egg and butter. Right. And they literally put that into <laughs> Google and they'd spit out recipes. And uh, they'd land on sites like ours. And got so okay. recipe sites took off. I think food had taken off already. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gourmet food movement definitely has been huge. I mean, the food network already existed, yeah. but the online equivalent uh, definitely took off around 2012, 13, and, uh, and Google accelerated it. Right. Okay. Uh, and then a lot of sites started to play that game. All recipes uh, just capitalized on what they knew that Google wanted and right. became huge. Okay. Um, a lot of people started to play that search game. That SEO game. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so then apartment therapy got very big sort of overnight, as you described, because it suddenly incorporated. It did. But it, I will say it, it, the food world is twice as big as the shelter world. Interesting. And I did not know that. Okay. So apartment therapy is, is 10 million monthly mm-hmm. readers and kitchens are just over 20. Okay. That they are both equivalent they're both in in Comscore, which is how we people rank things. Right. We're both at eight, for example. Okay. So they're they're equivalent in their worlds. Right. Only the food world's twice as big. Yes. Um, and and ironically, uh, and this is a problem we, we, we have to solve. Apartment therapy, for whatever reason, whether it's the name, whether it's older, or it's the space, is very well known at that level in yes. the shelter space, and kitchen. Uh, is not. Hmm. Um, Kitchen does not have as much brand recognition. In fact, many people, I've even talked to people, we've hired people who say, I love, I loved, uh, you know, that you hired me. You know, I didn't, I read Apartment Therapy for years. I didn't even know. Didn't even know you had the Kitchen brand and yet it's twice the size. Didn't even know it. Or, oh, I went on Kitchen and I didn't even know it was related to you. It's like when I went, when I, so when I, I don't know, I'm not the typical user, but the Gawker sites, I felt like you, everybody knew they were Gawker and Jezebel and Gizmodo and whatever you did right. spin. I mean, you maybe not read them all, right. but you definitely got that there was like a bunch of kids there that you could play with. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I think it has a lot to do with us, but it has a lot to do with the food world. Food people, they hit recipes and they're out. They're in and they're out. They see that they get what they want. Mm-hmm. And they're out. it's not a lean back, super brand loyal visit. So a lot of foodies, when they're grabbing their recipes, don't even remember where they're coming from. Interesting. And that's a very different experience than what we get on apartment therapy, where people come very intentionally. They spend yes. time. Yes. They bookmark it because they're going to think about getting that sleeper sofa in three months.
I'm going to take a quick break so that we can pause for a word from our sponsor, but we'll be right back. To stand out in this crowded industry, you need more than a love of design. You need strategy, sales, marketing, and other things they don't teach you in design school. This episode is brought to you by Fuego, whose mission is to empower the design trade. Fuego believes that business and art can and must coexist, and they've built a platform to make that happen. Learn more at Fuego.com or join the conversation in their Facebook group, which is titled For the Trade. And now, back to the show. You seem to have these very devoted followers on apartment therapy, and, and people seem to agonize over home purchases in a much different way than many other kinds of purchases. Uh, recently, Gary Friedman, the CEO of, yeah. of RH, was on the, on the most recent analyst call. He, he, he sort of joked about people spend much more time thinking about a $3,500 sofa that they're going to buy versus a $100,000 car that they're going to buy. Somehow this replacing the sofa yeah. feels like it's this decision you're going to make forever. And so people want to comparison shop and they want to look at all these things. They want to make sure that they've gone through this diligent process somehow, right? Yeah, that's a really good um, point. It, it, the the I don't know what I can say about cars. Cars are a, are a, certainly a commodity. Right. Um, they do sit outside the home. Yeah. Uh, they are typically purchased by one person only mm. in the family, and I think home has changed in that way. I think two people are playing when they're making home decisions now. Yeah. Uh, but what I will say about the home is that what I found both as a teacher and a designer and then working with people for the seven years that I worked in people's homes, is when you, and from my studying feng, feng shui and stuff like that, when you move something around the home, you're moving a piece of someone's soul. Uh, so, I, I mean, I've had people where I move the sofa and they cry. Really? Yeah, because the, the, your energy is really encapsulated in your home. Yeah. I mean, the energy that people have read, and I believe it, that dust... <laughs> Dust on the floor, dust on a shelf is, is dead energy. That's what dust is. It's the energy that has fallen to the ground. Mm. So we are energetic beings. We live in an energy field, and our home is that field. It's the only field we have. doesn't matter if we rent it or buy it. We, it's our home. So furnishings are a part of that. So when we're deciding to change something um, or buy something, we're, it's almost like we're doing an, in operating on ourselves. Mm. And imagine that. Would you ever say, you have a hernia, would you entrust yourself to go lie down on the table and put the knife in? No. 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 I don't want anyone else doing it either. So, I mean. This is true, yeah. too. And yeah. if, you, if they did do it, you'd want anesthesia. Yes. And which was, I thought, after working with people for seven years, I was like, you know, if I had anesthesia, interior design would be a lot <laughs> be easier so job. If I could knock these clients out for a while. I had a, yeah. Take care of it. I traumatized a few clients early on when I moved too fast and did too much, and they came home and they freaked out. And I think they... It wasn't that it wasn't better. It's, it was too fast. It was too much too fast, and it, 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 it upset their sense of balance in the world. Yeah. But to Gary Friedman's point, when you buy a sofa, it's a considered purchase. Yes. It is expensive. Yes. Um, it, is, um, it has to integrate into the home. It's, it's self-expressive. I know cars are self-expressive too, but cars are relatively, you don't have a lot of choices. I, I, I was, I'm shocked. I was started looking for a new car a couple of years ago. I was like, look, if I had all the money in the world, right. they all look the same. Right. They, they're, they really are 
and because they have to drive and function mm-hmm. as That's well. Right. But take a sofa. You, you're going to use that sofa. It's the largest piece in your living room to be an expression of who you are in the world right now. And it has to work. And so I think a lot of people come to their home energetically in a good way thinking, how am I going to paint this canvas? You're looking at mm. a blank canvas and they're choosing their color and their brush. And that's a good thing. Um, and that sofa is like, what color and what brush am I going to put on that canvas? And that's why it's a big deal. Um, a lot of people, and also a lot of people don't do it every day. Right. Cooking people do every day. Or some people do. <laughs> um, so I think people are more adventurous. They're a little more experimental right. with cooking. But even still, you get you know the Blue Apron people who need to be told what to do um, or helped along sure, the way. Sure, sure. So I, I'm a big fan of meal kits. They there make you go. a lot of things easier. Yes. Um, and we know a lot of you know a lot of particularly New Yorkers just eat out. So yes. But we are opinionated about food. All of us. I mean, anyone you can get anyone in a room. And in New York, at least, and you could talk about chicken, and you could talk about pizza, and you could talk about favorite restaurants. It's a shared language yeah. that we engage in every single day, three times a day, on some level. We do not have the same experience with our sofa. Mm. We may do it every seven to ten years, and even if we're in a, if we're in a couple, maybe we didn't do it, but it was done for us. Right. So we're just when it comes to that purchase, it's first, we're in first grade. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that, how has that influenced the, the apartment therapy site and sort of how you talk to people about the process that they're going through? So the goal with, the, the goal with apartment therapy, and I have to credit my brother with this because he, he was the one that saw the web part. I'm the teacher who knew how, what I wanted to tell people, but he saw the web, the genius of the web, okay. which is... This is your brother Oliver, by the way. Yeah, we should yeah, give him yes. credit. Yes, my brother Oliver. Okay, Oliver. Um, so the, the web, the amazing thing about the web is that unlike print publications, it's a two-way street. Print publications were like, I'm going to tell you how to do it. Martha was great at this, and go do it. Go do it. And then next month, I'll come back, and I'll tell you again. The web does that, and yet you hear back from the readers. And the readers talk to one another. And mm. the readers say, this is how I did it. Mm. And if you're a really good digital media person, you know that the comments are more important than your content because that's where the community is alive. And there are many more brains. If you have more brains in the, in the comments uh, than, that add to your brain right. as the writer, you have more knowledge. It's just, it's, you're, you're going to help more people. So as a teacher, I was like, this is awesome. I want to help people do it themselves. I want people to have happy, happy homes, beautiful, organized, healthy because I think home is the foundation of our lives. Mm-hmm. It's the only place we control, that we come home to every day, hopefully. And um, it makes a difference in our lives. Whatever our goals and dreams are, family, friends, romance, business, home is your foundation. So I want to help those. I want to help you make that sound. What do you need? You need inspiration. Right which is, hmm, I could do it differently. Look at that, how that person did it. You need uh, how to find something. Like, you know, I, I saw those blue pillows. You have these beautiful br- mm. print pillows. Yes. Where do I get those? How do I complete the task? Right. After inspiration comes action. And then the third part, which a lot of people enter into, is just sharing. Because if someone's really happy and proud, they share it back. 
So the web allows all of those things to happen, and the community is is integral to that experience. And so um, that is the genius of the web. That's what we try to do. Mm-hmm. Apartment therapy is about we want to feed up inspiration. Then we, then, we, then we know, oh, you're coming to the site because you want to f- find something or do something. Right. Right. You need to find uh, best, someone wants, everyone always asks me, like, recommendations, best white everyday dishware for my kitchen. Right. Um, or how do I cook steak in the oven? Or uh, what's the temperature that I chicken's done at? So these are point-to-point mm-hmm. um, problems that need to be solved. So the next part is we solve the problem for people who want to make and go into action. And then the third part is the, sh- is the sharing part. And that's where people come into the comments and say, this is how I did it. Check me out. Right. Or, or frankly, a lot of our content is reader submitted. So our house tours are sharing. It's all sharing back. And they're seeing one another doing themselves and then sharing it back. And that just sort of whips up a storm around, I think, empowerment um, and many more sources of inspiration and content than we could possibly ever do if we were editorially driven, purely. So that's part of the of the magic of the whole experience is that there's this community, and you were you were paying close attention to what the community was saying in response to a lot of what you were doing. Absolutely, and it, and it helped to sort of guide where you where you went. And is the community? I mean, do they do they tend to be positive? Are they on their best behavior? Because the, no, the, the community on no, the no, no, on the Wall Street Journal site or the New York Times site can get pretty rowdy. The the, the web unfortunately caters to the, you know if we have a hundred. At any given time, if we have 100 readers on the site, mm. we have one commenter out of that 100. It's a very small okay. portion. So if you think about being in school, in elementary school, mm. there's, there's the noisy kid who dominates the room. The web has that all over the place. Right. We do moderate our comments. We probably don't moderate it enough. It's really hard to, to do well. We try our very best. Um, we do have rules. We do ban people. We do um, every day. Okay. And we do cut comments. Okay. But the commenters are really a, a, a loyal class of, of people, many of whom are incredibly um, uh, helpful, mm-hmm. enthusiastic, smart, wise, community-minded. And, and some of whom are, quite frankly, uh, grumpy and a pain in the butt. <laughs> and um, best-case scenario community heals itself someone comes in and says i can't believe you wrote that that's such a cheap shot and and next person comes and says i don't know why you're saying that you know why because if you actually followed this series they were right. it's been building up and they explained that in the last one and blah 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 a lot of people don't read very closely before mm-hmm. they comment um but commenters on the web um if if when we get there and we're not there yet we will have a commenting system that rewards the best this is what gawker did and we it took a lot of work for them to do it rewards the best commenters creates leaders around right. commenters. so people who had the most constructive things to say okay voted by the readers themselves right so it's not like we're gonna we're like god mm-hmm. but it is important for communities to self-police and to self um and to be able to mute those people who are just frankly just I see like te- tearing down a conversation or getting trolly mm. and I that that is necessary and always contributes to the best community when it is um, 
has some editing to it. So, and and what have you learned about the people that are coming to your site? Can you sort of describe what what who's coming there and and how yeah. you've positioned it for would be advertisers of who's reading apartment therapy? So, part, when, so again, we started in two thousand four, and at the time, I was the I'm, I was the target audience. I was I don't know how old I was then. I'm <laughs> fifty one now, so okay, uh, almost fifteen years ago, right? right. So. 35. Okay. Um, so our audience was older, 35, mm-hmm. actually. I'd say 35 to 40, maybe, oh. maybe 30 to 40. Okay. Um, and then it got a little older, got a little older. I grew with it. Mm-hmm. And then the social social media hit. Social Facebook didn't really exist as a, even a force in our world seven years ago. Right. It, it, it literally was... You know, college campus uh, friending. Mm-hmm. So when that thing hit, and all the kids dove into social media, Pinterest, Twitter's not a big impact, but Twitter and Facebook and 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 that sort of stuff, and it really took over people's attention span. And then publish, they started to follow publishers, and our stuff started to go through the social. Right. It brought the age right down, and. And it brought us and has pulled us right into sort of a now present millennial uh, age range. So we're okay. We're twenty five to thirty five, centering around thirty. Oh, so it changed dramatically. Changed dramatically. Yeah. Well, it went up and then it got right. pulled pulled way down. down. Okay. Yeah, and now it's even pulling down into college, which we never would have touched before, like senior year college. Right. People doing their dorm rooms and stuff. Okay. Um, so does that make the site in a, in a way more desirable for for a certain kind of of advertiser? Yeah, it's. I think it's. Well, you have to choose your advertisers, and this is where I've learned a lot. And certainly not where I started. Again, okay. Yeah. Um, you can either go for a lot of people who have a little to spend, or a few people who have a lot to spend in the in in the game of advertising because mm-hmm. that's it's all about purchase purchasing. Um, we are not, because of where we started and what I believed in, I never wanted to be a luxury brand. So younger people tend to have less money, and they tend to be making the first choices of their lives around, particularly right. the home. So advertisers who tend to want to find them early are, are of two kinds. There's the more the mass people, like a Target or Ikea, for right. sure, which are our advertisers. Mm-hmm. But then you also get some advertisers who are looking to reach down and make them aware of them because they're going to get older. So we've even had advertisers like Farrow and Ball, which is a high-end paint. Sure. Okay. Um, Who are willing to invest in this younger exactly. client to familiarize them with yeah. the brand. But, but by and large, okay. we are, I, I very proudly like to think we are the food network HGTV of, of the of the web, okay. We we want to. Re- I want to reach the broad middle. Mm-hmm. What um, Ingvar Kaprad IKEA called the many. Okay. Um, that's that is what I believe in. I think that's where the most service is. Right. And that's and and, and millennials are that right mm-hmm. now. Now millennials are going to grow up, uh, but they are a huge population. They're the largest population in the workforce right now, and they are beginning their lives and so yes advertisers want to find them want to reach them and right. they do come to us to find them um, they're going to grow up though so the so the challenge one has as a publisher and again we're, I'm a very new publisher is how far do we follow them mm-hmm. and or then do we redial keep the dial down at the age of 30 um, as Ikea has done um, 
as a long-term principle. And, and who's, what's going to happen after? Right. I mean, we don't know. Um, there probably is going to be a fabulous business for following these millennials into their 40s and 50s and 60s um, when they want to buy high-end stuff or can. Well, um, and I feel like so many of the high-end home companies, so you mentioned Ferro and Ball, I mean, so many of the other companies are at, at least starting to articulate that message, right? That these people, uh, the millennials are getting a bit older. They're not ready yeah. to go shopping at the D&D building, perhaps, but they're able to move away from Ikea and move into some of the higher-end, yeah. right, brands? They would certainly like to think that. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And, and, and they want know, to tell themselves time that. is on their side. So there's there's no doubt that that is going to happen. Um, and you know the whole McDonald's approach is is well to be remembered, which is if you sir if you get kids eating your burgers, mm. they eat them for their whole lives. Yeah. And um, granted, it cuts their life in half. It, sadly, it might do. But <laughs> but, but so so sure. I think Farron Ball is wise to to play yeah. around in this space. Um, it's a, it's a great long-term investment. But but by and large, what we do is we appeal to the broad middle. We have a, we just did an advertising campaign with Target. They're our sweet spot. All the big paint companies, but not the expensive brands, the high-end versions. Okay. Um, and, and I like that. We... I want to empower people. I want to empower people who are on a budget, mm-hmm. um, who can, who can, who can, who are aspirational to live their lives better, but they're making right. smart choices. Does that mean you don't splurge? Absolutely. You... It's high and low. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you buy something from Craigslist, you buy something at Restoration Hardware, and you buy something at Target. I mean, and you, maybe, and you might buy something at a really expensive vintage store. It's, and you also have a hand-me-down that you got from your parents. That's where I think we live right now. Sure. And, and is the interior design community very present on Apartment Therapy's site? Are there a lot of designers coming there? Uh, you know, it's interesting. So when I, starting out, I thought we were going to play very closely with the design community, mm-hmm. particularly the New York design community. Right. We went to design. We went to all the design shows, High Point, Italy, uh, Stockholm, and what I've found, and it's it's not just the advertisers. Those our audience is so different that they, when we talk too much design language, it's like talking inside baseball. They. Not interesting than they tune out. So that tunes them out. Interesting. Right. Okay. Like J- Jonathan Adler, our readers know who Jonathan Adler is. Right. But they do not know who Jamie Drake is. Okay. Nor do they care. They don't want to know. No. Okay. That's not appealing to them right now. No. Right. No. And 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 you know what? It may be appealing to some of them mm-hmm. later on, but it will be a small group. We, again, we're talking to masses of people. We're yeah. talking a common language, like a Beatles-like language where everyone understands. And lo- by and large, that comes through designers who work through major retailers mm-hmm. who are able to reach them. Um, and, and, and now some, many do. Right. Which, and so they would know, they know Jonathan Adler, actually, because of his collaborations at his store. Sure. Also, he's briefly for J.C. Yeah. Penney. And, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you can't walk into a little store without looking at Jonathan Adler tissues, right? You know that sort of thing, right? Um, but the design, interestingly enough, I started to get really involved in the design community, even with getting to know Julia, an editor at large. Sure. I thought it doesn't really these worlds. You do thought not the intersect. synergy was there, and it, it turned out that it really wasn't. It's very different. It's very okay. different, and. In a way, it, and it's is that good. because your readers want to do so much of it themselves, or they or they just don't even relate to that 
sort of level? What what is what's the disconnect? So that designers can create beautiful spaces, but they don't they don't relate to that or. There's accessibility is a big one. Okay. They want to do it themselves. They want to feel like they're. I mean, you can't look at something. Typical thing, readers say. Oh, cover of Architectural Digest is a total downer. Because why? It's inaccessible. Okay. On many levels. Okay. And it, then you know if they get real defensive, say it's sterile. Right. Um, Interesting. They the, the homes our readers like are juicy. And they are lived in, mm-hmm. and they're accessible. That's sort of been our signature, and I think that fits the generation. I think it fits the the time of life. The uh, there's excitement. There's right. excitement when you right. go, oh, I could have done that. I, you don't look at Art Digest and think I could have done that. So it's a really different. There's many differences about it, but so we focus on that. I could have done that. That that. Um, aspiration that you can do it yourself mm-hmm. so when I, when I was starting out I was like my whole job was I'm not going to teach I'm not going to give you fish I'm going to teach, teach you fish. To fish that's okay. what we do we teach people to fish and I think through that there's a secret when we do well there's empowerment there's a spark of life there's right I mean look I love a, I love seeing um, cover of Art Digest last month there's um, that singer pop singer um, Latin Yes. Nikki, Nikki yes. Tr- uh, right. I know who you mean. And like, I, I can get into that uh-huh. too, and I can see the beauty and all that. But like looking at the cover of a Vogue magazine, it doesn't always make me feel better about myself, mm. especially when I don't have the same resources. So it feels out of reach, and that brings you down. Yeah. I mean, no. It, no, I, I, you, 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 I don't want to be too judgmental, but I think. What we try to do is is meet people where they're at, mm-hmm. and that's the that's that's the powerful moment for us, since that's why we go there. Right. And the design trade generally doesn't go there, and I know that for a fact because working for stores, when I would like talk to stores early on, I went around to stores, I reviewed stores in New York, right, and go in, photograph, yeah. ask them lots of questions, ask them about their website. Many times they didn't even have one. Um, they there's a real divide between uh, this this glass mm-hmm. is from Japan. This glass costs three hundred dollars, and and there's no uh, self consciousness about that. That's a really good right. This you cannot get this anywhere. In fact, you'd be it's cheap. You are lucky to just be paying yeah. three hundred dollars. And there's for this glass. That, that is a part of the world that exists, and right. I get that. Mm-hmm. Our the other part of the world is looks good that should cost about five bucks right you can get it at cb2 and there's a there's a divide there which becomes um can be very antagonistic Mm -hmm. and it has a lot to do with is it style and taste or is it just money Mm. and those people don't play well together the high-end people feel very threatened if you try to tell them to bring their prices down or say it's not absolutely absolutely special and the low-end people the middle people feel very threatened if you say it's cheap or it won't last long or it's just throwaway. Right. And I try to avoid those those moments. But they, by and large, if someone has a high end business, they don't even want to be around the the, the broad middle. Mm-hmm. They 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 don't want to bring their brand down. It's it's it said you know if you ever do uh, uh, merchandising, if you have a high end brand, it's very dangerous 
to try to bring it down and because yes. you could water it down, mm-hmm. liquefy it, whatever. And and there's and you all you have is your brand. That's the way brands live. Sure. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of fear of that, and there's a lot of that's why the D and D building you can't go in. I mean, now I think you can, but right. the, not long ago, you, you couldn't get in without a designer. There's a, they, I've been in high point where they won't let us in with cameras. I've been in high point where there's doors. They, they won't let you in. And, and they're also afraid of people stealing designs and this, sure. that, and the other thing. Sure. But, but a lot of it has to do with preserving the value of their brand, a lot of which is based on scarcity and um, craftsmanship too, yeah. but also perception. And so my world increasingly, I realized over the years, I thought they'd play right. was no, no, very no. different. Lots of separation. So not a lot of crossover with sort of traditional shelter publication readers and the audience that's coming to apartment therapy. Not much. In not fact, much. when I go there, when I used to go there more often, I found it was a, the posts, uh, a very low page views. Mm-hmm. I realized I was talking to myself. Right. I wanted to talk about these things. You wanted to share some of the things that you were seeing, but but, but being a New Yorker, respond. being in a little bit of a bubble, it was I was quickly right. realized I was I was. It reminds me like Martha Stewart. I think learned this lesson um, because she's incredibly cultured, incredibly talented, and, and and incredible style. But Martha Stewart was an evolution, and to get her into Kmart mm. was an evolution. Yes, that was and that was not her alone. And, and I think there's a lot of Martha Stewart that was probably felt very divided about Kmart mm-hmm. and standing in the, in the aisle with the pink gloves. Saying, yes, Here's I'm, the, I'm sure that host. took a lot of meetings and a lot of persuading, right? And yet when it happened, everybody it thought it was genius. It and of course, it, it was a huge success, right? Mm-hmm. And then they couldn't get enough of it. And, and she couldn't go high end. Yeah. When she started to do furniture with Bernhardt, it didn't sell. So you, do, you, you can get stuck. Um, but anyway, no, no, that, that that's interesting, and you and you've dabbled a little bit in in working with some some furniture brands. I know that there's a, a Maxwell sofa, there for example, it. right at the interior. Define. Does very well. It sells off the hook. I get checks every quarter. Is that right? So you're getting handsome royalty money from I, that? I have to say, I am, and I'm, or we are. That is very very pleased. It's, uh, we've played around with three uh, partners who are also friends. Okay, uh, but that one is the most successful, and I attribute it to. Interior Define, uh, Rob Royer's company, mm-hmm. is a direct-to-consumer. It's like Warby Parker for sofas and furnitures. And he's just, it was a startup when I met him. And they are really doing a great job. At, I mean, that sofa, which is a, I have two of them. Uh, you have two Maxwells? I have two Maxwells. In your home? I okay. do. They, That's great. It's under $1,000. Is that right? And it is a, it is a feathered sofa wood construction solid wood construction made in china for sure mm-hmm. you have to wait a little longer mm-hmm. but it's a great it's a great product um i think they really nailed it so you guys were friends and he approached you and said i would love to to make a sofa that you would that you would approve yeah. of right because you had some very specific he, ideas well, we, he, we weren't friends at first we met through work through okay. a colleague and and he knew that in order to get his company going, he needed to either be in touch with us for publicity mm-hmm. or advertising. And then the idea of collaborating came up. And you've mm-hmm. probably seen this with a couple companies where if we collaborate, which becomes a design partnership, right. then we throw in the promotion mm-hmm. and we all benefit on the back end. 
We being apartment therapy. Right. So, okay. So you'll, you'll so participate in that it. way. Okay. Yeah. So we, it was a partnership where we said, I, I'm being a designer, although I hadn't designed for a while, I was excited to do that. I, I designed, they manufacture, they sell, we promote. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did two collections actually. Uh, and we're going to, now the, both of the collections are going to extend into beds. They're already armchairs, but they're going to go into beds frames as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Okay. But so, they, but they still have to sell. It has to be successful. Right. If they make money, we make money. If they don't, we don't. And you can really sort of make brands, can't you? So if if, if apartment therapy gets on board with, with I, the company, I wish I could say right, absolutely. Come on. We can. You. Uh, we. Your seal we, of approval. I don't. We can. We can put a halo around someone. Okay. And we can direct attention to someone. But I don't think. Well, I don't know. I could be. I could be wrong. I could be overly modest. But I feel our readers are very smart. Mm-hmm. I feel our readers trust us, but they don't do what we say. Right. Um, and I think uh, so. We can shine a light on something, mm-hmm. but whether they take to it or not is really them. So, and and I've been burned a few times. I've been, you know, with a, something I really liked. Actually, one thing I designed myself. I really pushed hard on it. Readers didn't buy it. Didn't go over well. No. No, didn't go over well. They were right. It was not strong enough, and it really gave me pause. And I thought, you know what? If we're going to really go out on a limb, we've got to be confident that we can back it up. Mm. Um, we also now do that with our ad partners. So, you know, and uh, Target comes to us and, and, and does an ad campaign, and we love them. They're great, and they have great stuff, and our readers love them. It doesn't mean that everything they give us is going to be accepted by our readers. And Target does a lot of different things. Sure. So we really work hard, even with our ad clients, to say, look, I, tell me what you want to have happen here. Right. And let us tell you how to do it. Okay. Because we do not want to, if we're going to photograph this video, this style, this, edit this, we don't want to put it out there and have it fail with our readers and, have, and deal with you know, comments who are flaming you. That that's not good for us. It's not good for you. So let us help you. Right. And so that's increasingly where our, the business has turned. Where we, we have a little bit of an agency, creative services team, integrated marketing team that really tries to capture our, our clients at the beginning, and say, let us take, have a big hand in this, because it will work better for you. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the readers are going to decide, and they're smart. So, and this is the expertise that you've built up over the years. So you can really help advertisers tell this story to your market in an effective way, if they let you. That yeah, the and smart they, ones. And, and let they you. they do. I mean, right. they they do sometimes. Okay. Sometimes they really have something that they are sticklers for, and mm-hmm. but and then there can be a lot of back and forth. But I would say every single time we pushed, we were always more successful with our readers. There's no doubt. We know them so well. Right. We, we, whether they trust us or not, we succeed when we push and yeah, we do it all the time. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's called native advertising. Sure. It's, uh, it's not like old Vogue magazine where you could sit on a page and do whatever you want. It sits inside the, in the content. So there's every reason to treat this differently. And you do a good job on the site of sort of calling it out, but I mean, it does blend very nicely. Your native content blends very nicely with everything else that you're producing. It's, and it's absolutely meant to. And that's the goal. We Obviously, it's sponsored. It's t- sure. tagged. Sure, it's tagged. But if, if, if it doesn't seem like us or seem up to the standards of that we try to achieve for our readers, then it's a fail. Yeah. 
So, and we were talking earlier, it's it's a somewhat challenging time in, in advertising mm -hmm. right now, right? People are sort of not sure what they're doing in, in digital and... Keep our time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll do this and then... Okay. Um, so it's a it's sort of a challenging landscape in in advertising right now. What are you what are you finding? Are there brands that are doing less that used to be sort of more reliable advertisers? Are there other brands that aren't sure what they're doing? Well, it's I mean it's a it's a crazy time. I feel like it's it, it's hard. Some people want to say it's a crazy time now. I feel like since I got involved and started in well when I started in two thousand one, it was a crazy time. Yeah. I mean, there couldn't have been anything crazier than the Twin Towers falling. There was nothing crazier than the recession in 2011. Sure. Um, or eight. Eight. Um, failed. There's, there's nothing crazier than our political politics. Environment in right now. Year, year and a half. Yeah. So, I, and, and, and the web is a huge disruptor. It always has been. It will continue to be. So I don't think, I think crazy is normal. But what I will say is if, if I, if I could have, if, in the early days, when I everything was going up, 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 easily, easily, and I was, you know, a neophyte, and I, I, I didn't even, I didn't have any experience. It was all just, you know, the going up. And I saw the New York Times struggling. If I ever would have thought for a second that that wasn't going to be me, I was stupid, because every everything has to keep growing right now. Even a blog, right, or a website, or a, not just the newspapers and the magazines, and the, mm -hmm. or and and. and Interestingly, we're on a podcast right now. Yeah. So one of the hot things are, are, are podcasts, which is really sort of related to radio. Um, and We're bringing that old technology back. Yeah. Right. And so one thing I think you can say about this time, which is true both from an audience perspective and an advertising perspective is, because they're linked, is we are an incredibly fragmented time. Our, our attention is fragmented. Our, um, where we consume content, where we get ideas is fragmented so whereas if you go back to 20 years ago where you had your magazine and your tv mm -hmm. let's say or your newspaper magazine tv um and maybe in the car you had your radio let's, let's go even further back pre-cable you know and you had fewer and fewer choices sure you really Network tv you really right, knew yeah. where people's attention was yeah. you knew how to capture it you knew how to speak to them um and you could grow those audiences. Um, and actually, well, they were, as much as the population grew, mm -hmm. that's not true right now. It's, it's completely decentralized. It's like Burning Man for <laughs> media. Yeah. Um, both the, the fun part and the burning part. Mm. And so as a company, Apartment Therapy Media, we are, we've changed and morphed and grown a lot. Um, we do things totally differently now than we did three years ago and we will continue so what's exciting to me if you're going to be in digital media or digital anything you have to be on board with the idea that you're going to be different next year you're in a growing environment so one of the big inspirations for me is a book called the lean startup mm. which says uh he said in the, like page one when you work in a highly uh, uncertain environment you cannot make one to your plans you have to make plans every three months. And we literally, we, we had been making one-year plans and we kept missing them or going sideways. <laughs> so now we've, we've adapted to a sort of, we set for three months, we build in goals. At the very end, we just completed last week. We go, all right, how did we do it against our goals? What's our final grade? What did we learn? 
and then the entire company submits the objective for the next quarter. And based on what everyone says in the company, including the executive council, we say, okay, this will be the goal for Q2. And it's, it's meant to be not just a short-term cycle, but also the, the admission that we do not know. Right. And so you have to be learning. And when we, when we, when we pivot every quarter, when we reset, we, we put the past behind. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's a clean slate. And I think once you adopt that approach, it doesn't seem so scary. It seems much more exciting and iterative. And I frankly think those companies that do that will grow and thrive and be around while everyone else is going to get slaughtered. And you won't miss that big change that's coming because you'll be so close. You'll be so aware of it. And every quarter, you're really checking we cha- in. Yeah, we're prepared to change every mm-hmm. quarter. If we don't have to change, we won't. But we're totally prepared. And and what is what has changed the most for you recently? What have you really had to, to adjust? Because you've got a big team now. How big is... It's just 100 people now. 100 people. You say it, adjust, but I mean 100 people. Two years ago, I was 45. So it's, it's Yeah, so it's lot. grown dramatically. Um, okay. And, and that's and that's what uh, lots of extra advertising and, and marketing people, mm, or that's video. It's people? more of everything. It's, okay. it's 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 we pr- to produce better stuff, better posts, mm-hmm. better photography, better writing, better video. Um, we needed better people and, and, and a few more. It's like a, it's it's literally it's, it sounds like a lot of people, but it's like a few more all over the place. Sure. Then we had to have more operations people to deal contracts are complicated. We had uh, advertising goes up, so your sales grew, your integrated marketing grew, your assist, your your uh, your digit your programmatic desk grew. Right. We started an audience development team to mm-hmm. deal with all the analytics for the company. So you you grow a few new things, and then right. you add a bunch all over, and that very quickly adds up. Okay. Um, but the the uh, you asked me what the biggest yeah the big change, change for you yeah has been I, I think um, I'll, I'll I'll there's so many but um, I'll, I'll say two okay. one is it's very clear now that when you write a story or you conceive of a story you can't just conceive of it. As a story by itself, you have mm-hmm. to conceive of it as a story that's going to live in a certain place. So, a story we will write, we will now write stories for Facebook, or write stories for the site, or write stories for Instagram, or okay. stories for Pinterest. We don't write a story and then just like push it, right? In in and five, assume it's going to succeed on all platforms. Not at all. You're very platform specific. We 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 call it. We write everything is bespoke for where it's going. Mm-hmm. And a writer cannot doesn't get greenlit for a story unless they tell us where it's going to land. Okay. So it's like you can. It's like you build the arrow, but tell us where the target is. Right. Otherwise, okay. Why would we shoot? And that is that has transformed our team's thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard for some people to think that way because writers get very excited about what they write and they sure. it's hard for us to believe that maybe someone wouldn't like it yes. just because they're in a different place but it's true people are consuming things very in very different places and um, and then email we have email too mm-hmm. that's a big big change on the creation side on the selling side it is it's no longer enough it hasn't been for a while to say hey we're a big site we've got 10 million readers we've got 20 million readers right if, if you run our native advertising with us yeah. everyone will buy it right it doesn't work that way um, we have we have to explain to our clients where we are going to run their, mm-hmm. their their program 
and we have to have much more data to back it up. People are very data-driven right now, and um, while it seems simple to, to say, well, we'll give people more data, understanding data and how it works and, actually, and not bullshitting people <laughs> is hard. Yeah. It takes expertise. So we've had to hire a number of people just to work on the data side, and we've had to retrain our sellers to say, hey, you just can't go out there and smile. Yeah. You have to have data backup, and you have to sort of sharp. If you're talking to, say, this client and you know what their problem is, you need to go in with a solution that has a visual content piece and a data piece that will actually achieve their goals. You have to think for them mm-hmm. because they're data-driven. You know, they're they're going to spend $100,000 right. to drive something, and they're going to get graded on how well it works, and that's going to be data. So we have to be there first. Um, I think BuzzFeed did great in this way because they weren't very stylish, but they had all the numbers. Sure. And they and they there's a conviction and a confidence that comes when you actually understand what you're doing. And to be honest, five years ago, we I don't think we understood what we were doing. We were just we were successful. You had this big community, but, but we you, didn't. Yeah. We didn't know why. We were just we you know it's like when there's a lot of fish and they all mm-hmm. come mm-hmm. to that side of the pond and you throw the lure and you, yeah. you tend to catch them. But it's totally changed, and and. And in a good way, because I think, I think you you should be smarter about knowing why you're doing and what you're doing, and you can deliver more value that way. Um, the other nice thing about data is it, it says don't show something to someone who's not going to buy it, mm. who's not interested. Why would we waste people? You know, typically like a, a billboard, old billboard, which I love billboards, but they you. Calvin Klein puts a sign up on Houston Street and millions of people walk by. Not everyone's interested. Some sure. people are offended. Right. They're paying for everybody. Yeah. Web's not like that anymore. People want to pay for segments of people and focus, and which is actually good for us because... Good for you, challenging for, for print media today. Yes? So a lot of people yeah. in print tell me, yes, everyone's very data-focused, and they, they think don't have the data, they yeah. can't deliver yeah. the data, right? Yeah. So. So it's a challenging time for print in that in that yeah. way, and it's and it's leading a lot of people to to the web. And as we were talking about earlier, yeah. they get there and they don't necessarily know how to use it, right? They don't know what to necessarily do on the. The web. language is different. Yeah, yeah, and even a lot of young people, you'd think, oh, they're, you're a millennial, you know everything about the web. It, no. it doesn't come that easily. It's it it's a different way of thinking, regardless of age, and it takes time to study it and understand it. Mm. Mm. Okay, I know we've gone way over time. You're so nice to spend this time with me. I really appreciate it. It's, it's been, been great. I love to talk shop. It doesn't been, happen that often. Wow. I have to go back and do stuff. <laughs> yes, I know you need to get back to work. So, so thank you. My guest this week has been Maxwell Ryan, the founder and CEO of Apartment Therapy. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps to grow our audience. Thanks again to our sponsor and our producer. You can find us on editoratlarge.com or Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week. <laughs>